Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. The history and memory of pogroms and bu- the history and memory of pogroms and blood libels were central to the Jewish experience in late Tsarist Russia. And the 1917 revolution and subsequent Jewish emancipation didn't wash them away. Jews were victims of unprecedented violence during the Russian Civil War, and accusations of ritual murder persisted. This forced Jewish communities to ally with the Bolsheviks during the Civil War, and mostly remained so, even as official Soviet attention to anti-Semitism became increasingly ambivalent. How did this memory of blood libel accusations and pogroms shape the experience of Soviet Jews in the interwar period and after? Here is Alyssa Bemparad with this fascinating story. Alyssa Bemparad is a professor of history at the CUNY Graduate Center specializing in Jewish history and Russian and Soviet history. She's the author of Becoming Soviet Jews, The Bolshevik Experiment in Minsk, which won the National Jewish Book Award and the Frankel Prize in Contemporary History, and with Joyce Warren, Women in Genocide, Survivors, Victims, Perpetrators. Her new book is Legacy of Blood, Jews, Pogroms, and Ritual Murder in the Lands of the Soviets, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Alyssa Bemparad. Okay, so I thought I, I, we'd start the conversation about your very fascinating book. I, I really learned a lot from it. Um, but before we dive into that, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, my name is Elisa Bemparad, and I'm a professor of history. I teach in one of the greatest public universities in this country. Uh, I wish there were more such public universities like uh, the City University of New York. And I... I teach Jewish history and Russian history. So you do have this new book. It's called Legacy of Blood, Jews, Pogroms, and Ritual Murder in the Lands of the Soviets. What uh, inspired you to, to write this book? So I've always been interested in the question of continuity and change when we think about the Bolshevik Revolution, right? 1917, does everything change? Or what kind of continuities can we see when we specifically when we think about Jewish life. And, I'm, and I was using, I thought I would use anti-Semitism and specifically uh, the blood libel or the accusation, the false accusation that Jews kill Christian children for blood because they need the blood for ritual purposes and the pogrom. So the two, I guess, most extreme manifestations of um, anti-Semitism in Tsarist Russia. And I thought I would use 
these two uh, as a testing ground to see, you know, was it really all about change and rupture or what kind of continuities? And I, I guess I would add also that in a way, um, the blood libel and the pogroms found me. <laughs> what I mean is that um, I was looking for other things in the archives and in the Soviet press, mostly in Yiddish and in Belarusian, and I found reference to uh, ritual murder accusations in the Soviet Union, which no one had written about, and the pogroms of the Civil War, you know, such an important event, such a catastrophic event, um, and the long-term consequences for those Jews who remained in the Soviet Union has not really been integrated into, um, into that history. It's really fascinating. There, there is more work being done on this period. Um, and, but when I, when I read about the, the level of anti-Jewish violence in the Russian Civil War, it is really, it is really shocking. I mean, an estimated um, 1,500 pogroms and 150,000 Jews were murdered, and these are, of course, estimates. Uh, why do you? Why has this period of really extreme? I mean, it really puts, say, you know, I, I think about this in terms of, say, the amount of attention that's put on the pogroms of the 1880s or the turn of the century, the Kishinev pogrom, for example, and this seems to completely overshadow all of that. Um, why has why has this period been so understudied? So, um, first of all, I mean, you use the term overshadowed and the Holocaust or the genocide of European Jews, which took place um, uh, in the same territories, uh, specifically the epicenters, Ukraine, some 20 years later, of course, overshadowed this, um, you know, this violence, uh, despite the fact that it was unprecedented. Also, those, um, the Jewish communities that were living in the territories of Ukraine that were invaded by the Nazis in 1941 with Operation Barbarossa are the ones uh, that were successfully um, annihilated. And those were the Jews who remembered this experience. Um, but the Soviet Union uh, and the Soviet politics of memory also bear a responsibility. What is so interesting about these programs is that the Soviets, of course, and the, uh, try to remember them in light of ideology, right? But they represent a kind of, um, I would say, a dogmatic problem because um, it's not only about... Um, you know, counter-revolutionaries killing those who supported the revolution as the Soviets, you know, wanted this, uh, you know, this, this memory to be preserved. But it's really about um, the, the extent to which the working class, right, uh, participated in this violence. So how, you know, so the, for the Soviets, it was much easier to push aside this memory um, and to um, kind of favor uh, the memory of the programs of 1881-1882 or Kushinov 1903 because they're not problematic ideologically, right? They can be described as, um, you know, as perpetrated by Tsarist uh, authorities and the Tsarist enemies, political enemies. So that's one of the reasons why they are largely forgotten. Hmm. And what about for historians like yourself? For historians like myself, I think it, it is um, also uh, connected to these same reasons that I just provided. I mean, 
I think that um, in terms of the West, in terms of America, um, you know, America, um, if we think about, uh, well, if we think about foreign policy, actually, the Paris Peace Conference, uh, the, uh, you know, France, the United States, uh, after World War One, that is, uh, uh, you know, France, um, United States, Great Britain, were much more interested in reaching out to the newly independent countries, states that emerged after World War One, Poland and Romania, for example. Um, and Ukraine was not really on the radar because radar. So Ukraine did not get enhanced the violence, did not get the same kind of um, you know of exposure in terms of the press, in terms of the discussion of this anti-Jewish violence. Um, despite the fact that if you read the New York Times in 1918 or 1919, you do have articles about these uh, these anti-Jewish massacres uh, right. to, to the extent that you can even read that six million Jews are at, uh, you know, this ominous uh, prophecy, six million Jews, uh, you know, are at risk of being um, of being killed. Wow. No, that's interesting. I mean, I, I in, in terms of the foreign policy, it does make sense because if you you know, I know I've I've read about say the how the United States treated the Kishinev pogrom, for example, where they there was a it was a major, uh, you know, diplomatic effort to to expose it. Uh, there was the famous Kishinev um, petition. You also had a lot of Jewish immigrants to coming to the United States as a result, so that made it more politically, both in terms of lobbying, but also politically sensitive as well. Um, so that that doesn't you know that actually makes sense to me this the change in foreign policy in you know after World War One. Um, now, you know there have been pogroms uh, in in the Russian Empire and of course in Europe historically. Uh, but one of the things that you point out is that the pogroms during the Civil War are quite different. Um, how were they different from say the violence of the past against Jews? Um, so think about um, the one pogrom that took place in the city of Praskurov today, Khmelnytsky, in Ukraine, right? February 15th, 1919, which and this pogrom really becomes a symbol of the scope and the breadth of, um, of the violence of this period. Uh, and you really kind of get a sense of how it turned genocidal, meaning that uh, the killing is indiscriminate and systematic. Um, and in the course of less than four hours, uh, 1,500 Jews are killed. So, um, of course, this did not happen everywhere, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, this, um, uh, the numbers. But we get a sense that this is something unprecedented. This is something very different. Uh, some historians have referred to this violence as, um, uh, milit they have referred to these pogroms as military pogroms, right? Uh, so they're less spontaneous to some degree. Um, they are, after all, carried out by largely by uh, the troops involved in this chaotic and very violent conflict that the Civil War was. Uh, but they also grow out of World War One, which we cannot forget, right? World War One and, and, you know, the war zone, which really coincided more or less with the former Pale of Settlement, 
you know, so we're talking about the collapse of civil society, socioeconomic crisis, famine, the Bolsheviks that are requisitioning violently uh, and ruthlessly grain. Um, and you have people who are exposed more and more to violence. And as we know from other conflicts, people adjust to violence. Violence becomes normal. So that in the context of the civil war, you also have neighbors killing neighbors. You have that intimacy of violence that we don't see as much in other programs. And what is interesting is that you know, if we think about the voices of the victims, um, you know, I've read so many witness accounts, both in Yiddish and in Russian, Jews refer to these instances, not necessarily using the term pogrom, but they use the term hurbn, which in Yiddish means uh, destruction, uh, but also they use the, the Russian term riznya, uh, slaughter. And actually some of, uh, some of those who survived the civil war uh, even compare the anti-Jewish violence to the Armenian genocide. Of course, the term genocide had not been coined yet, um, but so they refer to the Armenian slaughter, Armianska Eriznia. Um, so, you know, so those who experience this violence also think about it uh, differently uh, compared to previous waves of anti-Jewish violence. Like many communities during the revolution and civil war, Jews had to, in many cases, make a choice. And they had to choose between a lesser of two evils. Uh, and, and Jews overwhelmingly side with the Bolsheviks for a variety of reasons. Why, why did Jews ally with the Bolsheviks? So the, the, this uh, phrase, um, choosing the lesser of two evils, was actually used by one of the witness accounts that I read uh, by a young Jew who was actually a Bundist. So he supported uh, the Jewish socialist uh, of the Bund party. He was living in Kamenets Podolsk, Kamenets Podilsky today in Ukraine. Um, and he's, he, like uh, most Bundists, but, you know, in 1918, um, still supported the Ukrainian project, meaning the Ukrainian directorate, meaning uh, being, being anti-Bolshevik and pro-Ukrainian. Um, but by 1919, he clearly says, uh, I had no choice. And so many other Jews had no choice because of this spike in violence, because of the shift um, in 1919, I had to choose the lesser of two evils and side with the Bolsheviks. Now, this, this is not so much an ideological choice at all, actually. It is, um, it is a choice that is triggered by uh, protection. Um, uh, you know, the Red Army soldiers and the Red Army did carry out uh, violence, anti-Jewish violence, and we know it from uh, Babel, for example, but um, not quite as much as the white movement or Ukrainian troops or other, um, other groups involved, Polish troops, uh, and also the Soviet authorities usually punish those who were involved in anti-Jewish violence. So more and more Jews support the Red Army, more and more Jews also side um, uh, with the Soviets and joined the Cheka, right, the, the Soviet secret police, and, and many do that to take uh, revenge, to avenge the family members who were killed, and, um, you know, so many times minorities, you know, we're, we're talking about the Jewish minority, but minorities tend to side with the centers of power that can protect them, can provide some kind of protection. 
So I think that the, the relationship between Jews and, um, and Bolsheviks and Soviet authorities has been uh, looked at mostly through the lenses of ideology, and I wanted to bring in uh, trauma. So it's not... It's not all, it's not about euphoria. It's not only about you know the extraordinary opportunities that Jews had by joining uh, or by supporting the Soviet experiment, but it's also about trauma, right? Moving away from the cities of death and um, wanting uh, revenge and supporting. Uh, despite the fact that this system did crush uh, Jewish religion, uh, the Zionist uh, and the Bundist, but yet support uh, siding with it because it prevented pogroms, and the Soviets were pretty successful in preventing pogroms. Yeah, I was really, I was really, I mean, this some of the things that I, I, I learned, you know, the fact that they created a commission to investigate you know, these, these past pogroms. And then the, what, another thing I found really amazing was they, they basically arrested and put on trial and in some cases executed the people who carried out the, the Billis case. Um, so, you know, I could imagine that, you know, that on the minds of, you know, Jewish communities that were, had experienced violence, this was a really powerful statement for them. Uh, absolutely. This is a very, very powerful statement. And, uh, you know, it's about negotiating what, you know, what the support and and what and how to adjust uh, in the context of this new system. But certainly the Bailey's case, I also found fascinating. Um, I, I, I had, um, you know, I found in the archives and uh, reading the press about the fact that, uh, you know, for the Bolshevik leadership, uh, Lenin and Trotsky, I mean, Trotsky especially, who shunned any reference to anything Jewish. But for him, he did write about the Bailey's case, uh, which embodied the corrupted uh, essence of the Tsarist regime, of the hate of, you know, and you can really kind of get a sense of the, you know, how the, the hatred uh, towards the Tsarist uh, regime so that, uh, you know, once they are in power, it's very interesting how they immediately crack down on those, uh, the, the real people who were responsible of um, orchestrating uh, the accusation uh, against Menachem um, Bailis uh, in Kiev and the trial. They kill the Vera Chibiriak, who was the leader of this gang of robbers who did kill uh, the young Ukrainian boy. Um, she is she is shot in 1918, um, and in 1919, I also found the transcripts of the closed door uh, trial of um, a, of the chief prosecutor in the Bailey's affair, Oscar Viper. And what is so interesting is that the the authorities, um, Soviet authorities, are really trying to assess the extent to which he believes that Jews carry might be carrying out this uh, this ritual. Um, and um, of course, in the end, he uh, uh, he is accused, he's sent to um, a concentration camp and he um, and he uh, dies. But um, but the Bolsheviks are, um, uh, I would say, very harsh and taking care of anything that uh, has any kind of, con of connection to the Tsarist regime. So that includes, um, you know, that includes uh, the Bailey's affair. In terms of responding to other instances of ritual murder accusation take place in the 20s and 30s, 
there is more ambivalence. Um, but by and large, what is so interesting is that, you know, throughout the interwar period, uh, you have, uh, you know, these investigative committees that are organized by the Soviets to inquire uh, about a specific ritual murder accusation. And then those who make the accusation are arrested. Whereas in the rest of, um, in other places in Europe, Poland after 1935, Romania, those who make the accusations against Jews of ritual murder are not being arrested. Yeah, I have to say when I was doing my research on the Komsomol many years ago, I was surprised to find out that they did have anti-anti-Semitic anti campaigns within the Komsomol organization. So basically to try to crack down on uh, on anti-Semitism, though you, you find it, and I'm sure you have lots of cases of this too, and in here, I think it speaks to the ambivalence you speak about. It it anti-Semitism comes out in different forms, nonetheless, that are not so overt. They're mostly in 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 almost the way the ideology is uh, used and who is targeted for you know discipline in many respects. Uh, precisely, precisely, and and uh, the ambivalence you you see in um, in the fact that. Um, you know, specifically by zooming in on ritual murder as a form of anti-Semitism, but um, it really depended on um, on the the Jewish uh, victims of this accusation uh, to get the attention from central authorities. Local authorities usually disregarded. You know, uh, even in the interwar period, local authorities disregarded. How how important is this? Excuse me. But they, they would be able to get the, if they were able to get the attention from the central authorities who are following the official party line, no anti-Semitism, then uh, the central authorities would intervene um, and those who made the accusation would be arrested. I see this in the case of, you know, in a small shtetl in, um, outside of, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the region of Cherkasi. Uh, when Jews get the attention from uh, Kharkiv, who, uh, which at the time was the um, capital of Ukraine, or in the case of Minsk. Um, so it, it really depended a lot on, um, on the extent to which Jews were able to get the attention from central authorities. Now, the, the Jewish alliance with the Bolsheviks, of course, put Jews in a bind because it fed on the belief and the pervasive you know, propagation of the so-called Judeo-Bolshevik myth, right? That Jews were part of some sort of a greater conspiracy. So how did how did the the did anti-Jewish violence in the Civil War reinforce the belief in Judeo-Bolshevism? So um anti-Jewish violence and the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism uh really go hand in hand in a way they are um, a very interesting case of studying how vicious circles, um, you know, for historians, how vicious circles arise, um, uh, meaning that uh, the more Jews were targeted for violence, the more they came to support the Red Army, which, as I said, um, you know, tended to engage less in anti-Jewish violence, significantly less. Of course, they're not supporting the Red Army, as I said, because of ideology, but more because of, um, you know, protection. So the more they support 
the Red Army. Uh, and the Soviets, the more they come to confirm this idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, you know, the, the idea that uh, this identification of Bolshevism with Jews, they confirm it. Uh, I say confirm it because we have to remember that this builds on layers of, um, of memory. If we think about the revolution of 1905, Already then, Jews are identified, Jews par excellence, so identified with, with, with uh, uh, socialist uh, groups. And, and the term, uh, you know, the term, a patri you know, to be a patriot uh, in the Russian Empire in 1905, 1906 means or entails to be an anti-Semite. So, I mean, um, of course, then you have the fact that you have Leon Trotsky, who is the head of the Red Army, certainly didn't help um, in terms of disentangling myth and reality. You have extensive propaganda that kind of pushes this, uh, this uh, identification between Bolsheviks and Jews, uh, not, only on the, uh, you know, not only very widespread among the white uh, movement, but also, um, as I have found, rather widespread uh, also among the Ukrainian troops. And, and again, the fact that so many Jews did side with the Red Army, uh, you know, the fact that the, there was a, a Jewish section in the Red Army for Yiddish-speaking men and women um, who, um, who, you know, joined it in order to fight against the pogrom, that also um, did not help. Now, another thing, in addition to these these efforts to uh, these commissions to, you know, hunt down pogrom, pogromists, um, I was also surprised about the the memory of the these pogroms during the Civil War and this, this anti-Jewish violence in the Civil War in the 1920s. Uh, so, t you know, talk about talk about that, that this effort by victims uh, to memorialize this violence in, in that post, you know, early revolutionary decade. Um, yes, that, that was also fascinating, uh, fascinating for me to um, uncover. I mean, the fact that the pogrom uh, for so many Jewish victims becomes this, uh, really this Jewish site of memory, lieu de mémoire, right? So it's very particular, it's about Jewish particular suffering, uh, which kind of uh, uh, um, is in tension with the Soviet attempt to turn it into a universal uh, site of memory. Uh, you have Yiddish writers who write uh, poems about these uh, these events. You have books that were written by Jews who managed to leave, uh, you know, to cross the border into Romania or Poland or even Palestine that are translated into Russian in the 1920s. Um, you have Jew in Jewish in the Jewish museums in the Soviet Union, specifically the museum that existed in Odessa the Mendelemochersfori Museum, uh, there was uh, one exhibit hall only for pogroms, uh, specifically pogroms of the Civil War. And uh, the painting on the cover of my book, which uh, is um, breathtaking, if I say so, right? Because it's on the cover of my book, um, <laughs> by Manuel, Manuel Schechtman, um, who actually directed the Jewish Museum in Odessa. And, and, this is a beautiful painting that really captures, you even see the mass grave 
in the background of um, of the painting, he was killed. This is an example of the loss of memory. You know, he painted about the pogroms and he was killed uh, by the Germans after 1941. The pogrom memorials uh, that um, that emerged uh, that were set up um, uh, on the territory of Jewish cemeteries or on the territory of the mass graves really uh, stood out for me. I did not have any knowledge of them. Um, you know, these mass graves that, and, and this and they help us, the, the memorials on the mass graves, they help us understand why this memory lingered, not only for Jews, but also for non-Jews who saw these uh, memorials. And some of them did read on them. Of course, it's very politicized, but it says, you know, the, the Soviet Union rescued Jews from the killing. And, and there were also more informal attempts to preserve this memory. Uh, in Kiev, in the late 1930s, the syn in the synagogue, one of the uh, synagogues that was not closed down, uh, on the day of uh, Yom Kippur, the, this very important Jewish holiday, Jews from the surrounding shtetls and, and towns would come and uh, would recite together the, 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 the memorial prayer, the Yiskor, but the, but the intention was really to remember the victims of, the Jewish victims of the Civil War. So this is a kind of informal um, memory, I would say. I, I want to bring trauma back into this because you you know you position trauma as a, a formative thing that shapes communities of Jews in in this new Soviet state. Um, can you expand on that some more? The role of trauma and how this shaped Jewish experience in in the twenties. So our reading of the experience of Jews in the in the in the interwar period primarily um, is um, in a way is um, directed by this idea that of course Jews are emancipated they are you know the pill of settlement no longer exists and they can move to the metropolises they can move to Moscow to you know what will become Leningrad. And um, incredible opportunities are offered to them, upward mobility, they can work for the state, uh, they are trusted by the state, they're more literate compared to, usually, you know, generally speaking, compared to their neighbors. And this is how, you know, the Sovietization, uh, and, and they embrace the ideology, this is how it has been read. So the, this demographic revolution that takes place with thousands and thousands of young Jews who move to the larger cities has been explained mostly by um, emphasizing, underlining the ideology and the upward mobility. Uh, I want to bring in trauma. Yeah. So many left these cities, especially the, the small towns, uh, because they're fleeing trauma. Uh, so many, uh, you know, one of, uh, one of the features of these programs is mass rape of Jewish women. Perhaps as many as one third of Jewish women were raped, experienced rape in the context of Ukraine. And so many, you know, want to leave, if they can, leave these spaces, these places, because of the trauma. And of course, trauma is also about uh, forgetting, and we see this in any kind of, in the context of any kind of study that has to do with genocide, right? It's also about oblivion, it's about forgetting. So this horizontal socialization that takes place 
uh, whereby so many Jews kind of, uh, you know, friendships and marriage with non-Jews is also a consequence of this trauma. Because, you know, what is really kind of pushing you in that direction is also the desire to forget. So I think that, um, you know, trauma is crucial in order to understand the, the, um, the experience of Soviet Jews in the interwar period. I find it really fascinating um, and in in bringing that then that in now you know despite the the Soviet state's efforts to combat accusations of ritual murder and anti-semitism you know none persisted nonetheless uh, well in you know into the 1950s and beyond of course to the point of you know as we as we all well know where you have a basically a state sanctioned claim of ritual murder with the doctor's plot um, so how were accusations of, of ritual murder dealt with in the post-war period? So the post-war period, well, already actually in the context of war, we see how the shift is happening also vis-a-vis -vis the accusation of, uh, of ritual murder. Um, in one of the instances that I discussed in 1943, um, a young Jewish woman who fled Ukraine for Kyrgyzia is accused of ritual murder. She turns to the local authorities who dismiss entirely. She turns to the central authorities who also dismiss the, you know, what are you talking about? You know, we, we are in a war and you bring this in. And by the way, the wife of the guy uh, uh, um, who made the accusation, I'm sorry, the husband um, of the woman who made the accusation is a general in the army. So you know, mind your place. And she is dismissed from her position. So um, so there is this kind of, the shift takes place. It is not considered relevant. Anti-Semitism in general, because of the geopolitical context uh, of, uh, cold, of the Cold War, the establishment of the State of Israel, uh, you know, um, Jews are in a very different place after, after the war. So um, the accusations are usually dismissed. Um, and I think they're also, we know, we don't know too much about them because Jews themselves fear to speak up, right? Uh, if they, they did not fear speaking up, or some of them did not fear speaking up, right, in the 20s and 30s, but now things have uh, changed significantly. Um, and so in a way, if if in the 20s and 30s, um, you know, Jews to some degree felt empowered by uh, by the fact that the state was their protector by the 50s and 60s, um, in a way, they they themselves lose faith in the Soviet uh, justice system and uh, and in the authorities interest in redressing whatever grievances they might have had. In looking at the the this violence, going back to this violence of the Civil War period and its its enormity and the number of victims, in in what ways do you think? And of course, this is with the benefit of hindsight. But you know, in what ways do you think that the the violence of the Civil War, you know, coming out of World War One, foreshadowed the Holocaust? Because the reason why I ask is because. You know the the popular kind of popular narrative of the Holocaust, and here I'm speaking of someone who's in ensconced in that, is that you know it, it the Germans came in and then there's you know the, they wanted they wanted to annihilate all the Jews, 
and uh, it's it's almost like something out of nowhere to some extent. Uh, so what what is your uh, re- opinion on the relationship between these two major events of mass violence? Um, I think that the, the, the violence of the Civil War has to be taken into consideration when we talk about, you know, the so-called bloodlands, uh, right? The bloodlands don't emerge with Stalin, um, uh, with the collectivization and, and the famine and then Hitler coming in, but they, they really begin with, with this violence and perhaps also, I mean, this violence, of course, grows out of um, a World War One. So I think that, um, you know, uh, both Jews and non-Jews um, um, cohabited with this, uh, you know, again, legacy of blood, as the title is, with this, uh, that did play out, you know, the, the memory of, um, of, of the violence of the Civil War did play a role in how, you know, how people behaved, um, uh, in, especially once you have the Germans uh, in 1941, who allow, they, they, you know, they also open up that can of worms of Judeo-Bolshevism, which if, if you look at the archival material from, uh, you know, fascinating material that I found in Kiev, uh, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, uh, uh, the uh, the OGPU and the you know the Soviet secret police is is keeping track of of the extent to which at the popular level uh, there is this accusation of Judeo Bolshevism is alive and kicking. Um, they don't deal with it because of obvious reasons, but it is there. They tame it, uh, but once the Germans are there, uh, I mean. Then it becomes uh, it becomes um, uh, it's there, you know. It's uh, it, the, the can of worms is open. I mean, in a way, you know, the the experience of World War One, revolution, and civil war, and that that area normalizes violence as a mode of dealing with problems or settling grievances or you know changing society. And it, you can see, definitely see this continuum uh, all the way through. Um, you know, and finally, what about the memory of, uh, you know, we spoke early earlier about how this period is understudied. Uh, where does the memory of these pogroms of the Civil War and ritual murder uh, in the Soviet period uh, stand today? Um, so when we talk about memory, of course, we talk about oblivion. We talk about forgetting, of course. Um in terms of ritual murder, um, I would say that, uh, you know, there are ethnographic studies that have been uh, done recently. And, and what it seems like, the you know, uh, most of people, most of those who were interviewed no longer believe the Jews kill uh, Christians for ritual purposes. But they do, some of them say they, they need, Jews do need a drop of blood, at least a drop of blood. So they're no longer killing them, but they need a, a drop of blood. Um, you know, in some cases, if you remember this tragedy that took place in Siberia, um, uh, was two years ago, right? Yeah, and two years ago at the mall when about 40 children died at this fire and the movie theater, it took place at the time of Passover, right? When Jews allegedly killed Christians. And, um, and this, the accusation emerged. It was on social media. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's on the margins. And it is a way, it's interesting because uh, it's a way to rationalize something that is completely irrational, 
right? How can I explain that these children were killed? Um, what is much more disturbing, of course, uh, if we think about the political leadership today uh, in Russia, is the investigative committee uh, of the Russian Federation, which was uh, created um, on, um, uh, you know, with the support of the of um, the Orthodox Church to corroborate once and for all whether the killing of Tsar Nicholas II and his family was indeed a, a Jewish racial murder. And um, I don't know what happened to that. I don't know the results. Maybe you know. Um, but, you know, that is much more disturbing. In terms of, um, in terms of the pogroms, um, I would say that it's, it's very hard when we think about, you know, uh, public memory for someone who is considered a hero also to be considered a perpetrator, right? So we think about how Petlura is remembered today uh, or how General Denikin is remembered today as this kind of, uh, you know, the symbol of Russian patriotism. He can only be remembered as, as a hero, not as a perpetrator. Um, but Putin, Putin did try to play the card, um, the pogrom card in his war against Ukraine, right? Uh, and he, uh, he, he clearly said that all Ukrainian, how, you know, speaking mostly to the West, he said, all Ukrainians are, um, you know, uh, Nazi collaborators and uh, committed so many pogroms against Jews that, of course, they will even now. Uh, so for political reasons, he's bringing up that memory. And of course, to date, uh, no pogrom has, uh, has taken place, of course, in, uh, in Ukraine. It, it's, it's, actually, it's actually fascinating now that I think about it. When you think of the, the efforts of these, you know, now post-Soviet states and trying to either rehabilitate or establish themselves as nation states, and have a revival of nationalism. And we see it in Ukraine, we see it in Poland, we see it in Russia, we see it in other places in, in Eastern Europe. Um, Jews play an interesting, they have an interesting place in that memory as either on the one hand, like your example of Putin uh, using it against Ukraine as a way to, you know, as a political tool to either hit against, you know, a rival nationalist group or to sublimate to create your own heroes. Uh, do you see something something similar along those lines? Um, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, and you said it beautifully. I wish uh, we had had this interview before I published the book. I would have added your <laughs> the concluding paragraph would have been this. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, no. I, Absolutely. And of course, um, you know, you also have, um, again, the um, Judeo-Bolshevism and the post-war, uh, post-World War II uh, geopolitical context plays uh, a major role. Don't tell me that I collaborated with the Nazis when those Jews were working with the Bolsheviks and, um, and killing us. Um, you know, I was one of the pogroms that takes place in Kiev in 1941 um, is uh, whereby, uh, um, I can't remember the exact, I mean, it's in the book, but I can't remember how many uh, Jewish women are buried alive uh, 
uh, by this group of, um, of um, uh, local Ukrainians who uh, say we can finally um, we can finally uh, reve take revenge against the Bolsheviks. And, you know, in the course of the 1930s, uh, so many of us died in the Khaladamor and, and the, you know, in the famine in Ukraine. Uh, and, and Jews are responsible for this. So now let's, you know, now we can be even. And, um, and this was a driving force for collaboration at the time. And uh, it is a driving force for rethinking uh, the past through, um, you know, through the lenses of, of this accusation of Judeo-Bolshevism. That was Alyssa Bemperod, a professor of history at the CUNY Graduate Center, specializing in Jewish history and the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. She's the author of Becoming Soviet Jews, The Bolshevik Experiment in Minsk, which won the National Jewish Book Award and the Frankel Prize in Contemporary History, and with Joyce Warren, Women and Genocide, Survivors, Victims, Perpetrators. Her new book is Legacy of Blood, Jews, Pogroms, and Ritual Murder in the Lands of the Soviets, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Abused by the fathers, but that was at home, so 
also to prove to each other that they were not homos. The exclamation of the phobic fury. Execution of judge and jury. The mob mentality. Individuality was nowhere. Dignity forgotten at the bottom of a dumb old dick. And a numb cold stare. On the way, homo was back to name calling. Ten against one, they had us back up against the wall. They reveled in their laughter as they surrounded him. But it wasn't a game when they up jumped and grounded and They picked up the bats with the muscles straining. And they decided they were gonna beat this fellow's brain with an awful, powerful shower. An hour full of violence. And quickly stick to brutality and dominance. They didn't hear him screaming. They didn't hear him bleeding. They ran like cowards and left the boy bleeding in a pool of red. To all tears were shedding his eyes while he slid into the back of his head. Dead. The death of the silence. In this language of violence. Death of the silence. But death of the silence. In the cycle of violence. Death of the silence. Won't see the face till the eyelids drop. You won't hear the screaming until it stops. You won't see the face till the eyelids drop. You won't hear the screaming until it stops.